talk start it um i believe you uh makes an amazing work because initially as i know you started as a uh at, at tech week as an event and after that you jumped to incubation program and you have grown to one of the leading programs so while we have some programs in the us and uk france you're definitely one of the biggest uh could you tell us how you I uh, came through whole the journey from the event to incubation program. Sure. And and um uh, I, I want to dissuade any thinking around biggest or not. I think we're all trying to solve an education problem and, and what I really see is myself as one of the nodes in a in a larger network of people doing good work in the space. Uh um I'll I'll let me talk a little bit about the the genesis of, of StartEd and tie that back to my personal story. Does that work for you? Yes. Sure. Um, I'll start my story in the middle. Uh, so I was an early employee at uh, an accelerator called Textiles. Um, and uh, I was a program manager at um, the EdTech Vertical, that was the Kaplan EdTech Accelerator. Um, I ran that program. Um, uh, and uh, when that program wrapped up, I wanted to keep that momentum going that Textiles had created. Um, so uh, I went around uh, starting several other EdTech accelerators. Um, I created one for Intel. I created one for a family office. Uh, I went to Germany and Singapore and studied their ecosystems uh, and, and supported entrepreneurs in education innovation. Um, but uh, it, it got rather frustrating working on this model that essentially deployed capital into 10 companies Uh, or roughly 10 companies each year in a given program and wanted to have a little bit more of an impact on the education of EdTech founders. So in uh, 2015, I co-founded StartEd with my colleagues, uh, Jonathan Harbour, Jeannie Allen, uh, Ted Brodheim, Doug Lynch. Um, and the goal was to simply create an organization that uh, attracts and develops an army of education innovators, right? Um, We also want to, wanted to turn New York and the East Coast into a hub for education innovation um, when we started out. And I think for all intents and purposes, New York has become one of those hubs. So we've evolved our mission now to grant access to innovation hubs around the world. Um, uh, so for in the support of education innovation. Um, the way we go about uh, accomplishing that twofold mission is by impacting entrepreneurs at four different stages. Uh, so, uh, I it's my personal opinion that there's four stages that require support. Um, uh, first, it's that stage when the innovator hasn't defined a problem they want to solve yet. Um, they may be a student, they may be in the classroom, they may be working at a corporation. Um, uh, the second stage is when you have a 
a problem that you really passionately want to solve. You have a company, you may have a team and of co-founders, but you might not have much else. Um, the third stage is uh, when you have some traction, you have some evidence that you're really solving a problem. Um, and then lastly, you're a large organization uh, looking to source innovation and, and talent, right? Um, now, uh, at each of those inflection points, we uh, conduct a particular program. So uh, for those early stage innovators who, are, who haven't defined a problem yet, we run courses uh, through partners like New York University. Um, those courses involve apprenticeship with one of the startups that we work with and also yields a case study on that company. Um, the second stage, uh, when you have defined a problem, um, we have this online community of EdTech founders. About 100 founders at any given point are supported through perks, through weekly programming, but most importantly, a community of EdTech founders passionate about the education space. Right. Um, thirdly, uh, we've had um, uh, these week-long accelerators. I call them hyper-accelerators. Um, uh, and we've been running them in New York and the Bay Area uh, and supported a few hundred companies that way. Um, obviously, those programs are now online, and we just ran our, more, uh, our first one last week, and uh, to 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 much success. And then finally, EdTech Week brings all those stakeholders together. Uh, so large corporations and philanthropies sponsor that event. Um, uh, it still involves a couple of thousand investors, educators, entrepreneurs, um, and um, I'll I'll mention that. Uh, while we haven't made this official announcement yet, we'll make it within the next 10 days. That entire event, um, which is slated for June 1st to the 5th, is now a distance learning and networking event uh, to solve problems amid COVID for pre-K, K-12, higher ed and workforce learning. Okay. Uh, let's talk uh, your collaboration with the New York University. Uh, could you tell us how this collaboration evolved and currently uh, do they uh, influence your work or maybe you influence New York University work? How could you uh, evaluate this collaboration nowadays? Uh, certainly. And, and I want to mention that uh, and while New York University, specifically the educational school, NYU Steinhardt, was our uh, initial champion and, and great supporter through the genesis of these, these programs. Now we work with several schools, um, and so I, I, I can't pick favorites. <laughs> so we do a lot of work with the University of Pennsylvania, for example, specifically uh, the Catalyst program that focuses on education innovation at uh, Penn GSE. Um, and it's with them that we are hosting EdTech Week uh, in a few weeks. Um, I'll talk broadly about how we've engaged schools in the past. Um, and, and I think it's important to engage schools at multiple levels. So engaging schools at the student level, the faculty level, and at the administration level. So we, so there's three different plug points, if you will, into, into a given school. Um, students, as I mentioned, take part in our courses, have the option to take part in our courses. The faculty can mentor and, and conduct masterclasses for our community and at EdTech Week. And, and uh, importantly, the deans and administration uh, allow um, our, our collaboration with them, allow us to really become uh, an education program and learning organization that teaches entrepreneurs how to innovate in education. It's a little bit meta, but um, without uh, the support of NYU and, and UPenn, we wouldn't have gotten here. And we, there are other school partners that we work with as well. 
Uh, one year ago, when I've mentored uh, your program, I've noticed what you already were more and less global. Uh, some of your uh, fellows uh, come from Mexico, for instance, and around the world. Uh, nowadays, uh, who are your alumni and people who uh, go into your program? Is it people from the U.S., from uh, New York City in particular, or it's actually a global program nowadays? It's, it's actually global. So we work with about 500 tech companies per year, um, and about a third of them are not based in the U.S., Uh, and and just for the those few hundred companies that are focused internationally, we actually have a specific program called the USA at Tech Accelerator that grants an international company access to the connections, capital, uh, and customers in New York, and then also uh, in the Bay Area and Los Angeles. And so a company can virtually or in person plug into both ecosystems, um, investigate whether there's opportunity to expand into the U.S. or not. Sometimes learning that you shouldn't expand in the U.S. is as important as, as learning that, that you should and how to do so. Uh, so we've supported a, a few hundred companies um, on that front as well. Uh, just w one week ago, you spent a demo day completely remotely, and many programs currently try to do the same. Uh, if we're talking about lockdown, uh, does it influence your vision and curriculum in a long-term perspective. So just imagine that this epidemic is over. So do you plan to update your approach to make more uh, remote uh, experiences for your teams and fellows in the future? Uh, we already have. So uh, within the past uh, four or five weeks, my team pivoted everything that we do to running purely online. Uh, kudos to them uh, for being able to do so, so quickly and effectively. Um, I think the fundamental problem lies when when schools and or you know event organizations like ourselves try to do the same thing that they did in person just online. I think that's the wrong approach. You have to fundamentally deconstruct the modality of learning online from uh, and, and differentiate that from the in-person experience. So, for example, specifically about uh, the demo day. Uh, a traditional demo day would involve, you know, 10 companies pitching on stage. There would be um, a potentially opportunity for Q&A. And then there's social activity, both before and after, that yield kismet and purposeful uh, connections. You can't do that in, in person. So there's no reason why you should um, uh, have, have the same structure for a demo day online. Um, in fact, you have to realize that the demo day is no longer constrained by space or time. All you need to do is achieve the same goals for the company, which is allow them to meet as many people who are going to add value to the organization, right? And if you think of it from that perspective and then remove the constraints of space and time, then our demo day now looks like um, 10 companies virtually presenting 90-second uh, pitches followed by a Q&A with just uh, the started network of mentors who are specifically interested in that company. And then... If the goal is to simply get a meeting, we summarize that demo day, um, take out the key points from that pitch, and then send that to everyone and allow the uh, allow our network to book meetings with them at a later time. It doesn't. It does. We don't need to be constrained again by by space and time, and that's actually yielded a very decent experience for the companies because now they're getting far more outcomes, i.e., meetings coming out of a demo day. 
Uh, let's talk about technology, priorities, and focus. Uh, you mentioned what teams come to you from across the globe, and it, uh, it means that we solve a pretty different challenges. For instance, if we team, we have team from a South Asia or from, from Africa or from Europe, uh, sometimes we uh, solve problems like uh, uh, some quick, uh, some access to education, some basic problem. At the same time, if we jump to US, we are solving a bit more techno uh, technology advanced problem. So how do you define your priority in terms of a social impact and scope when we solve maybe uh, not so technology advanced problem, but the huge in terms of uh, uh, scale and uh, technology advanced startups may be solving not so big uh, uh, country but something more technology way just to, to so that i answer understand the question um uh, the question is fundamentally about impact versus using uh technology to create that impact yes um so i've always believed that everything starts from the problem that you need to solve Uh, and and everything that you do um, uh, put together to actually solve that problem, the, the team of advisors and co-founders, um, the, the the solution itself, whatever that is, kind of goes in service of solving that problem, and that's a iterative process. The technology is as much an input into that as anything else, right? And and it's perfectly fine uh, to build a technology enabled business that's that's impactful and solves a problem as it is uh, to build a pure heavy tech uh, business in education that solves a problem i think the, the technology is is the tool and the secondary point and you need to iterate on that and if um, uh, what, what i've tended to see is the worst thing that you can do is build a solution with heavy tech without having a really good understanding of customer user needs in education And that's a sure fire policy for, for, for failure, right? Uh, let's talk how COVID-19 affects our current state of EdTech technology. Based on your statistic, uh, do you see a shift uh, from, uh, in terms of uh, teams you uh, face uh, every day in your latest demo day, for instance, in terms of how often uh, teams started to um, tap uh, remote uh, learning, some specific initiatives, focus on lockdown situation? Do you feel that there is some kind of uh, long-term shift in EdTech which you never seen before? Uh, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll quote uh, Michael Moore at uh, Global School of Valley and, and say that there's going to be quite a few learners and educators that come out of this experience um, having had a good experience with using uh, uh, distance learning and, and ed tech. And there's going to be a portion of folks who don't come out with a good experience, right? The folks who have a good experience come out of it will probably keep doing it more. And because we're in this gigantic controlled experiment where every single person in the world, relatively, has has to uh, trial distance learning and use it because the other options aren't available, we'll think of this as, a, as, a, as the largest user testing experience in the history of our industry. And, and a certain portion of those users are going to retain that behavior, right? So, uh, so I'll start with mentioning that. Um, I, I haven't run the statistics on uh, the, the specific numbers of companies impacted by, by EdTech, but in general, the impact has been asymmetric, right? Um, there's some companies that just happen to be in the right place at the right time, i.e. they had solutions for that enabled 
at home or distance learning and working. Um, and those companies are see, seeing uh, tremendous growth. They're, they're trying to keep up with hiring uh, to, to meet that demand. Uh, companies like Coursera, OutSchool uh, tend to fall in that category because they're impacting learning and working at home. They just locked out, right? They just happen to be in the right place at the right time when COVID hit. Um, there are other companies um, that that weren't in the right place at the right time. And what I advise them to do is to, to be entrepreneurs. They need to speak to their customers and users, the current customers and users, and understand how their customers and users' lives have changed. And if their solution doesn't match what this new normal looks and feels like, it's time to be entrepreneurs and, and change your product. Right, your um, if you don't see exponential growth in your company, it's probably because you're using customers' behavior has changed. Um, I also want to recognize that we don't have enough information yet on how things will change. I think the fall will give us more data on that fact. Um, right now, people are in shock and are trying to figure out what the new rules of the world are. Um, and I think it'll take till summer at the very least for those new rules to be set. Uh, let's talk uh, data ethics. Uh, recently, uh, MIT uh, has started a course uh, dedicated to uh, how to teach engineers and entrepreneurs data ethic. There's also a broad discussion about that entrepreneurs, engineers, and people who are involved in big data, machine learning, uh, uh, should perceive some kind of a, a feeling that they just coders, not the managers or owners of data. So there are many ways how to grow the new generation entrepreneurs who are responsible about how we deal with data, uh, personal information, and uh, privacy of people and customers. So I would love to ask you, do you have some kind of, a, um, I don't know, special hours or uh, how you work with your entrepreneurs or technologists in terms of data ethic? Maybe you spend some time in order to discuss this topic. Uh, certainly. Uh, I'll, I'll frame that uh, in a couple of ways. One is that um, uh, the, the current new, new normal has led us to require us to teach every topic virtually, uh, whereas I think in the past there's been precedent that some topics can be taught uh, virtually and some cannot. I think all those biases are being removed. Uh, for example, on Coursera, most courses tend to uh, have focused on business and technology pre-COVID, but in COVID, since all the other options have been removed, people are also exploring art and history and things that aren't traditionally taught. So I think ethics also falls into that category. Uh, it's it's my belief that anything that involves instructions uh, can be transformed through digital uh, instruction. So it is completely possible to 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 teach uh, ethical data use uh, virtually, especially about how that's how we're doing so. Um, I think setting uh, a, a set of guidelines around uh, behavior, moral behavior, uh, you know, ex uh, you know, giving examples of what. Uh, the golden rule is uh, do unto others what you would have done unto you, giving examples of what the behavior around integrity looks and feels like, right? Because th those aren't things that aren't ex explicitly taught in school, uh, not all schools. That allows us to build a on, on top of that, um, that foundation, the guidelines for using data, right? Um, uh, so I think it all starts with setting the right values and 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 culture at your organization and then the specifics of applying that to data use 
are built on top of that. Uh, let's talk uh, about assistive technology and diversity in classroom. Uh, I believe that currently we have an interesting moment when we have more and more technology on the intersection of education, assistance, uh, classroom, and healthcare, specifically uh, in terms of neurodiversity, diversity, social robotics, adaptive learning, speech recognition, facial recognition in classroom. Um, interesting enough that while we have many teams uh, in this field, it's still pretty risky field. It requires more investments, it requires um, great education, preliminary research, so it's always some kind of a huge journey. So I would love to ask you, uh, do you have such teams in your batches, people who work with disability, diversity, adaptive learning? Um, absolutely. So I, I'd say at least a third of our companies fall into that category as well. Um, and, and they focus on marginalized learners and educators. They focus on neurodivergence um, uh, and, and also uh, uh, those who are marginalized socioeconomically. Um, historically, uh, founders that focus on that space have primarily been supported by nonprofits and, and non-dilutive capital. I think over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen a significant shift um, for, for you know, private venture capital and angel investors supporting entrepreneurs in that space. So where the money is going to solve a problem, usually solutions follow. Uh, so I think we've seen a large increase in those, those uh, companies in the past 10 years. Um, I think interestingly, um, what we're going to see is that um, those companies are going to need to, to take a more central stage uh, amid COVID. Because things like COVID exacerbate existing societal problems that already existed. They don't, they don't necessarily create new ones. For example, uh, kids that traditionally summered from the summer slide tend to be from marginalized populations. We are currently going through what is the equivalent of you know, uh, a summer that's uh, seven to eight months long, right? Uh, those kids who don't have access to devices as much as their peers might uh, at home uh, are going to experience more of a slide. So how can those those problems be solved? It will have to be by those founders who are focusing on those populations. Um, I would love to tap another important topic uh, is the adoption of technology. I believe that uh, in terms of uh, healthcare, education, we um, often uh, face the situation when we have an amazing product, but founders struggle to um, be in touch with particular institutions, hospitals, schools, in order to uh, bring the idea or adopt particular technology. For instance, I face a situation that people who build robotics for hospitals not able to sell this idea to hospitals or uh, came for particular challenges. So I would love to ask you, uh, First question, uh, what, what percent of your founders focus on consumer market and which percent is focused on a more institution uh, stuff that's used by institution educators? And second, when we're tapping institution, how do you teach founders uh, to reach them, to adopt this technology, uh, to um, break with barrier and actually adopt this innovation right here and right now? Yeah, well, well, I mean, I can talk about what, what the norm was uh, pre-COVID, uh, but I actually uh, think that organizations that engage institutions, either at the K-12 or higher ed level, uh, and are able to survive the longer sales cycle uh, and, and close those those schools, 
tend to see a very loyal, sticky customer base, right? Um, so it's really about being able to bring your burn low, understanding that it'll take some time, probably twice as long as you would expect, to to build those relationships and and secure those uh, those customers. Um, on on the B two C side, there's it's a, it's a very different story. I, I suspect that um, uh, COVID will probably flip that because institutions are kind of in in uh, in uh, in, uh, in a mode of trying to figure out how they're how they're going to survive come fall. Um, uh, so a lot of founders, I get a question now these days asking, "Hey, should I go B two C even though I was focused on B two B earlier?" Um, I think the question is is starts from the wrong assumption. The assumption is that there's capital flowing in some part of the market. There's not. There's there's asymmetric shocks to the system that shifted the entire problem scape of of education and work. So unless you talk to your existing customers and understand how their needs have changed, you shouldn't be completely changing the problem you're solving, right? If you've spent a lot of time and have evidence that you were solving for a particular population, Focus on that population and, and make sure to understand whether that their problem has changed. I doubt COVID has solved their problem, right? COVID didn't come along and get everybody jobs, right? So uh, so if you continue to so- solve a problem for a particular group, just understand how those needs have changed um, and continue to focus on that, that group. And that will allow you to tap into the capital required to get over the hump. Uh, I believe that we live in interesting situation than we face in innovation in very different places over the world. So I would love to ask you, uh, when you talk to your founders, uh, which countries or educational ecosystem you share is the best practices? Because, for instance, uh, when we read World Economic Forum, they often mention Finland, Singapore, uh, Sometimes Japan uh, is a great example of smart schools, smart cities, um, adaptive uh, ecosystems. Or your examples are very diverse and, and is, uh, represent different places and countries. Uh, it, it varies significantly based on what problems the, the, the government is equipped and understands it needs to take care of. Right. So in places like Finland, Finland in places like Singapore, the government is very adept uh, at, at understanding the problems it needs to solve and has created situations where there's not much disparity in learning and, and the fundamentals of education are, are, uh, are addressed. Uh, and they've done so in very culturally unique, different ways, right? So if you look at how Japan solves educational challenges, um, that, that kind of starts with a very uh, a focused um, view of the individual uh, holistically across the, the across their lives. Uh, Japanese early childhood educators are seen with the same reverence and requ- and require the same training as surgeons do uh, elsewhere in the world, right? Uh, so, and then in uh, in places like Finland, um, uh, the the family at the center of of uh, the school. The school is at the center of the community, and children are given uh, adult responsibilities earlier in life about their own education. So the, the agency tends to be a, a theme there. From a, from Singapore's perspective, um, uh, it's it's more of uh, a kind of a directive, uh, prescriptive approach to how people should go about uh, uh, living their lives and learning. But uh, for that population, uh, given its size, given its affluence, it works very well. So um, if you were to layer on top of that specific edtech solutions 
it would have to be the next stage of how uh, technology of next the next level of problems that need to be addressed finland japan and singapore have very different problems than the rest of the world in terms of of education and work challenges but they still have problems right um everywhere else in the world we just have kind of lower order problems that including in the us <laughs> uh that we need to solve before we can get to the stage that uh that uh, those countries are at uh let's talk education in general uh currently uh, specifically when we tap uh, silicon valley and technology ecosystem uh some vcs like uh, peter Thiel, for for instance we have opinion that we, st- we have a significant gap between uh, educational institution and reality and uh in, in very often uh, students um uh, live in some kind of a Uh, simulacra, not, not actual uh, practical education, and then they go to virality, they're not ready to be involved in engineering, to technology, in innovation. Uh, from uh, my side, I'm not completely agree, because uh, many amazing teams come as a spin-off from university project, as a former researchers, uh, as a people who were a part of a university incubators, amazing team from MIT, Stanford, Harvard, and so on. So I would love to ask you, what is your opinion, your observation, and your statistic based on your fellows, alumni, and people who you work with? Um, just to clarify the question, uh, 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 the question is about... Um, uh, the the genesis of of the quality of particular teams um uh, is that uh, is that accurate depiction of the question uh no uh it's more about uh do you feel the gap uh between university education and mm. uh reality and entrepreneurs so how often uh people who go from the for instance good good universities uh become a good innovators uh, people who involved in practice and technology Yeah, so in my opinion, uh, uh, great talent exists everywhere, but opportunity does not, right? So I think it, uh, what what we tend to see in the ecosystem of uh, ecosystems of you know the high, the Ivy schools, they tend to be better resourced and therefore have better opportunity for talent to shine. Uh, I've seen great entrepreneurs come from the lowest ranking schools, but the, that the difference from The, the Ivy League peers is that they had the resources available um, and the modality of learning was different, right? So uh, typically, great entrepreneurs need to focus on learning by doing. They, they need to be passionate about solving a particular problem, even at a very young age. And if they happen to fall into a situation where they got to you know try out what starting a company looked like when they were teenagers, because they got part, took part in some kind of after-school program or their parents or some uh, some mentor came to their lives and encouraged them to do so, then they tend to be as impactful uh, entrepreneurs as, as their Ivy League counterparts. So I, I think at, in the Ivies, there's, there's enough time and resources to, to practice learning by doing, i.e. start companies while you're learning, right? Um, uh, so I think that's the biggest differentiator between those two populations. Um, there isn't a difference in talent, there's a difference in opportunity. Uh, how many successful entrepreneurs in your program represent former uh, successful scientists or researchers, for instance? Uh, it's, uh, there's a fair portion. Usually uh, we try to ha- include um, uh, the, the learning scientists and the educators at the forefront of, of 
how people learn and learning science amongst our mentor community. Uh, and uh, 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 companies uh, tend to tap into that, that advice as uh, part of building, the, building their products as part of our programs. Um, traditionally, it's, it's r- relatively hard to find a learning scientist um, for every company that, uh, for every tech company that exists, right? That's that's also a severe gap in in kind of the needs versus the output of, of talent in our industry. Um, uh, my my uh, my opinion on on uh, impl- involving learning science in building your product has to do mostly with the the relative importance of of learning and efficacy given to a product by its users and customers, right? And unfortunately, for the first you know, 20 years of this industry, the the, the impact of uh, a, a technology solution wasn't necessarily a big buying factor, right? As long as it fit a particular need at the administrative level, the the user and the, and the, the actual learner or the educator wasn't necessarily the priority. I mean, it's mind-boggling to think so, but that's kind of how how the education system works. I think that's changing now, right? Now, I think there is a big focus on on learning and efficacy. And there are organizations out there that are actually certifying companies for doing the research, right? So if you, companies like Digital Promise are now certifying companies that actually do the research in when building their product. They're not certifying the fact that that product works, right? Because that involves a, a lot more uh, variables like implementation and 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 so and the popul and the match with the population, but they're simply certifying this company has done its homework. They understand the research behind the the, the solution. Now they have, but they still have these other challenges that they need to get over to create a, create learning outcomes. Uh, and talking about impact, um, how do you keep the balance uh, between uh, financial profitability and focus? And promise because, for instance, um, I spent uh, some time working with a startup from Africa, and I believe uh, we team have uh, tons of information in pitch decks about impact. The whole storytelling is great, is awesome, but it's really lacks any detail how exactly we would love to bring this to reality. So I would love to uh, ask you about how you keep this uh, line between being impactful, be, being important in, in terms of a mission, but still more or less pragmatic and financially efficient. Yeah, I, I think uh, everybody tends to think of um, this, this tension or imagine this tension between impact and profitability. I don't think there's a tension between those two things. I think if you're creating a great company with a specifically designed prop, defined problem and have a business model behind it, then you can be impactful and you can also make money. And you need to align those incentives in order for both those things to be true. Um, uh, and, and if you think of, uh, think of it, um, that particular company you are talking about just needs to articulate a particular business model, i.e. who are they solving a problem for and, and who is the user and who is the customer. Um, that those might be two separate things, right? The user and the customer is often often different in in education, as we discussed. So, uh, a being specific about the problem, being specific about the user and the customer, and and who is paying to solve that problem, uh, is important. And then also realizing that uh, different stages of solving that problem require tapping into different pools of capital, right? So, in order to 
capital and resources. So initially, you should, they should be considering the fact that uh, advice and people's time is as important as funding at the earlier stage. Second, they should be aware that non-dilutive funding, if they're solving an impactful problem, is, is a great source of initial capital, right? So going to grants and going to philanthropies to get to a certain point of scale um, is, is something that a lot of tech entrepreneurs have access to, but might not necessarily realize that it's a good initial step. And then later on, when they've figured out that they can solve problems at scale, then start raising venture capital. Or better yet, don't. Right? You just just go to your customers and, and build a great company uh, based on based on revenue. And I think those are the better outcomes for, for entrepreneurs as well. Okay, I would love to talk about now about universities. Uh, you mentioned that um, along with the New York University, you work with the Pennsylvania University in other schools. Um, for instance, uh, for myself, I've noticed that university itself uh, shifted to the kind of the platforms. For instance, even as an employer, I felt that I'm able to pick students, uh, launch some initiative completely remotely because almost uh, every top university have own platform service. It is so efficient, uh, so convenient for uh, different people from our uh, ecosystem to be involved, both employers, corporates, investors, uh, students. So I would love to ask you, uh, what kind of innovation uh, did you see uh, over your collaboration with university, how they change themselves and how do we try to compete with the market and trends we have today? Yeah, I think um, the universities that will probably uh, uh, succeed and prosper coming out of uh, out of COVID uh, will be ones that employ, um, uh, will understand that the problem that they're solving has changed, right? So, in 2020, um, the, the student parent, the, the parent who is also a student, makes up the majority of, of the, the higher education uh, customer, the user, right? Uh, secondly, um, uh, the universities that learn um, uh, from employers about what needs that they can fill will probably succeed as well, right? Um, and then also universities that have been doing this for quite some time, you know, providing a kind of a lower cost um, a distance learning option, but not a requirement, um, will succeed as well. I mean, there's a handful of universities that do that really well in the U.S. The University of Phoenix is a great one. They not only focused on uh, focus on the mas- marginalized uh, uh, learner, but they also have been primarily providing distance learning for quite some time. Uh, Western Governors is a, is a great university. WGU. Those are the types of universities that universities should look to in, in redesigning their courses and creating options. It's not about you know shifting their entire model. Some portion of the population will go back to school in fall, right? That will be determined by you know, the, 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 the parents' financial position and their opinions about whether they want their kids to go back to school or not. And that in-person campus experience will continue to be something sought after because it's you know culturally important. Um, there's a certain population where their parents would not be in the same financial situation. The students might not be. That won't go back to school. They will opt for uh, a more cost-effective distance learning option, and they'll learn from home or wherever their homes are, uh, wherever they are, uh, because they would be working during the day or taking care of the kids during the day. So, I think that that shift that we've that was coming in the next five to ten years suddenly got accelerated, and we arrived in. In, you know, 2025 or 2030, 
uh, in 2020 because of COVID. I would love to tap another important topic uh, is a education on demand. One thing that I've noticed recently that uh, we're shifting from the EdTech focus on uh, content or educational content on some kind of uh, experiences. For instance, while we have a tons of uh, open source knowledge, uh, free stuff, then people able to uh, find some uh, useful information, people start to value some unique experiences. For instance, just recently, I faced the startup who were uh, pitch about uh, professors on demand. So uh, we don't need just to get a Harvard content because there are some EDX courses and we're able to learn them for free. But we would love to uh, create our own class with particular combination of professors because we love them and we would love to work with particular people as a kind of a new experiences. So I would love to ask you, do you feel that we actually have some kind of a shift than people, uh, customers, people who uh, buy, purchase uh, or become users of edtech startups became focused on experiences, some kind of a picky, uh, seeking for something unique for them. Yeah, I think the, the, the learner, uh, the customer is becoming more intelligent, right, about what they're consuming. I think um, uh, since there are so, so many options now, uh, even the average uh, student who's investigating college doesn't just investigate the college anymore. They investigate boot camps. They investigate working. They investigate taking a gap year. So there's a lot more options than that were available in the, for the previous generation. Um, and they're doing that research by themselves. Um, not everyone is is you know shifting to doing their own research in terms of their higher education. Um, so uh, what I expect will happen is what was what was inevitable was the uh, uh, was the uncoupling of the three value props that universities traditionally provide. So one is high quality content. Right, so that's that edX content you were talking about. Um, it's access to the high quality expert. It is access to that professor, and then thirdly, it's the network. Right, uh, you can and when it comes to the IVs, you can throw in the brand affiliation with that as well. That kind of is tied in with the network. Those first two things have very easily been decoupled in the last ten years. Right, so you can easily access high quality content and and professors as you just mentioned, but the network hasn't necessarily been easily decoupled. So for people who value that and will pay premium dollar for that, that's why the IVs of the world will still package those three things and sell them at a premium, right? I think everybody else will look at um, getting those three things from three different places. And right now, most people are willing to pay uh, or, or realize the value of the content and the expert. They might not necessarily understand the value or be easily... Uh, able to access um, uh, that network or that brand. Uh, and another question uh, very related to this topic, uh, I would love to ask you about um, open source project. Uh, recently, I started to explore more and more uh, startups. Uh, most of them are kind of a tech nonprofits uh, focused on uh, democratization of science, research, education, open knowledge. For instance, uh, there are teams who uh, try to uh, help people to add uh, 
research, even though we have no PhD, in order to involve more people into science. Uh, some services focus on open knowledge and some open networks. So I would love to ask you how often you face such type of teams, because it's a pretty risky, it's not always profitable, but it's a kind of mission-driven work. Um, so, you know, you're talking specifically about open education resources? Op open education, open science, open research and related topic. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, my take on, on uh, uh, that depends on, you know, what, what you're opening, right? So you can be open about your technology or you can be open about your content. Um, and there are business models that uh, do very well focusing on, on open networks. I think it's just it it needs to that that's just one particular type of product that needs to align with who you're solving a problem for. It needs to align with the problem, um, uh, and it's it's I think it's a good intermediary um, uh, between the the traditional venture capital capitalist model and and kind of the philanthropies of the world uh, donating to solve a problem. I honestly think that that particular uh, a subset of companies and products can actually uh, expand outside of that that you know, that box that I just put them in, uh, but currently there hasn't been as much adoption amongst the users and customers who tend to associate um, value with paying for something. Okay, got it. And uh, my final question, what is your advice to people who would love to be involved uh, in EdTech in 2020? Uh, what type of ideas, niches we need to pick and what kind of advice in terms of maybe funding or, or top technology? Uh, I don't know, <laughs> okay. is, is my answer. Uh, uh, so, but I'm, but I'm, Putting together the uh, the group of people uh, a few weeks from now in order to uh, try to figure out what questions we need to ask, uh, right, for to answer these problems in in the future. So uh, I don't have the answers, but if you want to try to figure out the problem and answer the, try to figure out what questions you we should be asking. Um, I'll be gathering a couple of thousand investors, entrepreneurs, and educators a few weeks from now at EdTech Week and. Uh, we've made that free uh, so that people anywhere and, and everywhere can, can learn what those questions are.